from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. This is Sermons by the Park. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard, and it's summertime here in New England, which means it's time for folks to get some time away, maybe down on the Cape or up in Maine or New Hampshire. Here at Union, we are getting away. We've made the move outside to worship under the oaks and the pines and the hickory trees in our outdoor sanctuary just inside Bird Park next to our church building. You are, of course, invited. In fact, you are more than welcome if you're in the area to join us on Sunday mornings at 10.15 a.m. All we ask is that you bring your own chair, but we always keep a few extras on hand if you don't have one. And if you are away, you can worship with us from afar via live stream on Facebook at facebook.com slash churchbythepark. Our summer sermon series is called One Verse Wonders. These are messages drawn from the wisdom and inspiration of a single chosen verse of Scripture each Sunday. I'd encourage you not only to listen for the Word of God here, but to take each week's verse and maybe write it down and keep it in your pocket, or maybe memorize it so that you can call it to mind as you go about your day. You'd be amazed by how just a few words can open up a whole new world of possibilities. Here's this week's message. First scripture this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And this is a familiar parable. And what I did do is I wanted to know what, how much a denarii would cost. It was about an, a, a day's pay. Then an expert of the, teach, of the teachings of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, what you have given is the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with this parable. A man was going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he found the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now chance by a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite passed, and he also passed on the other side. A while later, a Sumerian came traveling by and went to him and bandaged him and poured oil and wine on his, on his wounds, and then put him on his animal and took him to an inn, inn nearby. He took care of him. The next day, he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will give you more if you have spent it. Which of these do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robber? 
And the man said, The one who showed mercy. Jesus said, Go and do likewise. May God add a blessing to the reading of this gospel. So, I don't know how many of you are familiar, but about oh, almost 30 years ago at this point, uh, there was a song that came out on the radio that you could hear anywhere and everywhere. And it, once you heard it, it got stuck in your head forever. It was by a, a, a family band of teenagers called Hanson. And the song is Mba. That's all I got to say, right? Now it's just going. It's playing, right? Well, believe it or not, just within the last year, uh, the band Hanson, which has been playing all along ever since then, making new music, releasing new albums, they released uh, Mbop 2.0. And um, it's just a, it's a cover of their old song, and they can't quite hit the high notes like they could when they were teenagers. It's still pretty good. It, uh, it reminded me of, uh, of, of uh, you know, the song doesn't really make a lot of sense, but boy, is it catchy. <laughs> And uh, it's in that spirit that our summer sermon series is titled One Verse Wonders. Uh, we're looking at scriptures that ideally will get in your head and stay in your head so that when you're walking around, going about your life, you'll have them there with you. And so this week's scripture comes to us from the book of Proverbs, our One Verse Wonders from Proverbs 3, verse 27. It says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to give it. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to give it. And this morning, uh, for me at least, this verse prompts two questions. Two questions, one of which is familiar because we just heard uh, an expert in the teachings of the law ask it. The first question is, to whom do we owe good? To whom is good due? And then the second question is, what is in our power to give? What is in our power to give? See, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's attributed to the King Solomon, and it's written almost as a collection of uh, advice of, from the king to his son, presumably about how to be a good king. Over time, it has sort of evolved to just be advice about how to be a good person, but I think it's important to remember that original context. This verse in particular is in a section that's, that's actually really about paying debts or, or lending out money. The idea here is if, if someone comes to you as the king and asks you for something, and it's in your power to give it to them, you should just give it to them right then and there. You shouldn't tell them to come back tomorrow or say, well, maybe I'll think about it. Just give it to them. Just give it to them. If it is in your power to give it. But of course, that, uh, that is precisely the question. What is in our power to give? It's an important question for a king, but it's an important question for all of us, for we all have things that we can give. And we are all surrounded by people who are always in need. Uh, this verse brings to mind a, a saying of Rabbi Hillel. He said, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And if I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? Recognizing that our lives 
are not just our own, recognizing that our lives are tied to the lives of others, the question comes, how are we to live these lives? Are we to live them delaying, thinking, considering, weighing, or are we to act? But again, when we start down this road, there's always that question. Is it in our power to live as we ought to live? That is the controversial aspect about this famous parable of Jesus. The Good Samaritan is synonymous in our culture with kindness and selflessness. It is what we're all supposed to do. Even people who don't go to church know the phrase, Good Samaritan, and they know it because it's about treating others well, being kind, doing the right thing. But the problem with the Good Samaritan parable is always the question, who are you in that story? Everybody wants to think that they are the Good Samaritan. Or perhaps they think they're the ones waylaid by the road, and maybe that is the case. But nobody wants to be the priest. Nobody wants to be the Levite. But of course, those are precisely the people to whom these words of Proverbs are directed, the people with the power to do good who choose to withhold it. See, this parable is not simply about kindness. It's not just about kindness. It is about power. Now, when I say the word power, uh, my kids anyway just associate that with like the thing that makes the lights go on and, and that makes their toys run, that comes out of batteries or out of outlets or something like that. Power. Power is what makes things happen, right? And given that we live in the parsonage, it really is the power of God that makes things happen <laughs> for them. Of course, kids also associate power with superheroes. Superheroes have superpowers that allow them to save the world. Superheroes can do things other people can't. Though a lot of the lore and the stories told about superheroes these days, most of the time the things superheroes can do is usually destroy or do some sort of violence in order to save the day. Hence why every Marvel movie is rated PG-13 and it's not really appropriate for kids younger than that. But of course that's in keeping with a lot of the ways we think about power as a social phenomenon. We often associate it with dominance and fear. In the 17th century, the British philosopher Thomas Hobbes wrote about the power of the sovereign state as a leviathan that controls the lives of the people in the state. Max Weber, a German philosopher in the late 19th, early 20th century, followed up on this idea. He said that, that power is a monopoly on the legitimate use of physical force. And that this is what we attribute to the state, to the government, to the police. They are the ones who have the legitimate use of force and violence, and every other use is illegitimate. But of course, that's the real question. When is violence legitimate? When is it illegitimate? But following on these traditional associations of power with strength and government and, and force, the greatest 20th century thinker about the idea of power was a French philosopher named Michel Foucault. His name is almost synonymous with the idea of power because Foucault said that power is not simply about what the state does. Power is everywhere. Power shapes 
all of our lives. His most famous work is called Discipline and Punish, but actually it's more literally translated Surveil and Punish. And in that book, he explores the institutions of prisons. The question he sort of asks in the book is, is, is why are prisons the way they are? Why are prisons, why do prisons utilize power in the way that they do? Because he says it used to be that prisons were places of torture and torment. They were places where violence was inflicted, but that's not how we think of the prison now. We think of the prison as a place where bad people go so that they can be rendered docile, that's his language, so that they can taught, they can be taught, they can be rehabilitated to become productive members of society. He says the fundamental purpose of the prison is not punishment, it is discipline. And this discipline is achieved through not just confinement, but through surveillance, he says. The ultimate achievement in a prison is when the subjects of that surveillance begin to surveil themselves. Uh, there's a famous um, image that Foucault utilizes called the panopticon. It's an arrangement of a prison in a kind of circular shape where one guard stands in a central tower and can see into every one of the cells around the circle. But the thing is, is that the, the prisoners can't see the guard. So they never know when they're being watched, such that eventually you don't even need a guard in the central tower because everyone is watching themselves. And Foucault says this is not just how prisons work, this is how modern society works. That we are all constantly disciplining ourselves and disciplining others in an effort to make sure that we are all being productive members of society. And this is really the answer that our, that our modern society gives to this question. To whom do we owe good? And what is in our power? Presumably, we owe good to those who share the organization and the values and the systems that we participate in. Our fellow prisoners, if you will. Those who are subjects of the same system of discipline and conformity in which we live. These systems always have their boundaries, just as prisons have their walls. And there are always people on the other side of that boundary. The function of the power in society then is for the sake of that society's stability, so that any one individual's power is always a part and parcel to their place in the system. That's why for so many people power is something that they fear or maybe that, that, that worries them or that they want to rail against. It's, it's a way of keeping us in our place. But power is also precisely the thing that allows you to get out of your place. If you can just figure out how to game the system. Even the guards in a prison are prisoners themselves, though. Of course, the gospel, though, and the story we hear this morning presents us with a very different picture of what power is. The people in the parable who show the righteousness of God are not the expert in the law, not the priest and the Levite, the people whom society has placed in elevated positions of power, who are the ones who are supposed to discipline us into conformity and following the rules and being good citizens. No, those are not the people who exercise power in this situation. It's rather someone beyond the society 
in which Jesus and the person he's having a conversation with live, who is the hero of the story. Someone from beyond the boundaries of the law as they understand it. And Jesus' point in this parable, as his point in every parable is, is that this is what the kingdom of God looks like. That the power of God is something that we don't find in a society structured for conformity and discipline, but rather that the power of God is something otherwise. In other words, to be wise to the needs of others and to do good to those whom it is owed. To our neighbors, yes, but not just our neighbors. The funny thing about this verse in Proverbs is that that phrase, it says, when it is in your power to give it, the word for power there in the original Hebrew is El. And El is a very small but very important word in the Hebrew Bible because El, in its first definition, if you look it up in the dictionary, is defined as God. In Genesis 1.1, when you read, in the beginning, God created, it's in the beginning, El, God created. That word is associated, of course, with power and might and strength. God is the one in the Old Testament and the New who makes things happen. But God's power is otherwise. It is from beyond the world in order that it can create first and then redeem this world that we find ourselves in. And to his credit, the philosopher Michel Foucault, he did not just theorize power as he saw it in in society. He, he thought all different ways in which he saw power manifesting. And in one of his later works, one of his last lecture series that he delivered, um, it was called Security, Popula Population, and Territory. But in it, he describes what he called pastoral power. And he said, pastoral power is a different kind of power than the power I've talked about in my other works. Pastoral power derives particularly from the Jewish roots of the Christian tradition and the metaphor of the shepherd, the pastor in, in French and in most other languages. It is unique to the Judeo-Christian tradition that the shepherd, the image of the shepherd, is associated not just with people but with God. Think Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Think John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Nowhere else does this appear in the ancient world, this idea of God as a shepherd. And so Foucault starts to investigate, what, what could this mean? What kind of power is it that the power of God is, this pastoral power? Well, he says one thing about this power is that it's not about territory. It's not about domains and lands. It's not about marking, carving up Walpole and saying, this is my pasture and that is your pasture. To exercise pastoral power is rather to be in a position of power over a flock in the midst of its movement. Uh, Whitney and I recently got into the show Yellowstone. I don't know if anyone else has watched that show. And if you can get past all of the violence and everything, really the best part of the show is all of the sweeping vistas of Montana and the scenes where they are herding the cattle. The cowboys are gathered around. And let me tell you something, it seems like a lot of work. 
the, 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 they're constantly losing one or another of the cattle, and each one of these losses is a valuable loss, and so they're always bringing them back. And of course, we see those same images in the gospel in the ways Jesus describes how the good shepherd goes to find the lost sheep. We'll, we'll leave the 99 behind. And so the flock that pastoral power is exercised over is fluid. It's dynamic. It's changing. It moves. And that is true of the church through every age. We have always been in the midst of a time of flux, on the move, never quite standing still anywhere. And every time we try to stop and say we've made it, the world changes around us and we have to change again. And that is a challenge, but then again, no one ever said that the exercise of power was easy. Second aspect of pastoral power that Foucault talks about is that it is fundamentally beneficent. It is about doing good in order to do good. He says this is fundamentally different from the other kinds of doing good we see in society. Most of the time when people are doing good in society, they are doing good for some other purpose. To be acknowledged for it, to get money for it, to get something in return for it. It's a transactional thing, doing good. The pastoral power, the power of God, is about doing good in order to do good, and nothing more and nothing less than that. Of course, this is what we see with the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan never asks for any recompense, and yet still is willing to sacrifice two days' wages to take care of a stranger, just because it's the right thing to do, and because it is in their power to do it. The pastor, the shepherd's power is all about keeping watch, watching out for potential dangers, being vigilant for both danger and opportunities to do good. I think that's one of the big differences between thinking about the passage in Proverbs in the context of a throne room where people come to the king and ask for things, and we who don't have a throne room to sit in, and yet we find ourselves out in the world all the time, surrounded by people who maybe don't ask for good, but could sure use some. Pastoral power, and again, this is a big difference, is essentially selfless. The shepherd is always an intermediary for the good of the flock. The shepherd never gives the sheep anything. Never feeds them by hand, never, never gives them the bottle necessarily. The shepherd's role is to take them to the green pastures and the still waters so that they can drink and they can eat for themselves. It's about enabling others without any sense of accruing credit to oneself. And lastly, pastoral power is an individualizing power. Foucault says, the shepherd counts the sheep. He does everything for the totality of the flock, but he also does everything also for each sheep of the flock. And this is the biggest difference. Power as it's exercised out in the world is often for the good either of one or of all. And there's a constant fight between these two, trying to, trying to weigh the benefits of the many against the needs of, of the few. But the paradox of pastoral power is that it is for all and for each. And I think the reason that we always wonder about what is in our power to do is because we sense the limit on what we can give. We have a sense that we don't have enough 
to go around. But the difference between pastoral power and the powers of this world is that pastoral power flows from the very heart of God, which is never scarce, which is always abundant. It is a well that has no bottom. It's why Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. He says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the beginning to end. And so we're called not to faith that is just an acceptance of some idea of power. We're called to a faith that recognizes that we are recipients of the power of God, that it is already in us to do good and to not withhold the good that we have been given. It's really hard, it's really important, I think, to examine our own consciousnesses and ask, is our faith deep enough that we can give and not withhold been reading a book called Dropping the Stones by uh, a pastor named Carlos Rodriguez. He was a pastor of a charismatic church in Puerto Rico, and he tells a story about a situation where he had to examine his own conscience. Uh, his reality check came in the form of a man named Robert. Robert was an alcoholic who was homeless and, and stood by the traffic light, the traffic light that was right on the way to the church. And Pastor Rodriguez had to pass by Robert every day. And he would pray, not for Robert, he would pray that the light would not be red. <laughs> so that he wouldn't have to stop. But when he did have to stop, he would offer his, his nods and he would throw a few coins in Robert's cup, knowing that he was a good Christian and this was what he was supposed to do. Even though he also knew that all the money in that cup was just going into a bottle at the end of the day. And then one day, Robert came into his church. Rodriguez wrote, I, I noticed him right away, and I wanted to be kind. I wanted to be kind, and I wanted to prove that I was a cool pastor and a loving Christian. And so I made my way over, but before I got too close, the stench radiating off of him was more than I could handle. So I gave him a short handshake, but as soon as we were done, with a half smile on my face and trying to be discreet, I began my search for hand sanitizer, because who knows where those hands have been. A lot of the other folks in the church had the same reaction. They wanted to be kind and welcoming, but they were put off by the same things the pastor was. Then one day, one of the members of the church named Catherine she was praying, and she said she felt a compulsion to go and give Robert a hug. Now, in this church, Catherine was an outsider. She was a British immigrant. She could not really speak Spanish that well, which is a problem when you're in Puerto Rico. But nevertheless, she went over and approached this homeless man, and she asked him in her broken Spanish, can I give you a hug? And the man said yes probably thinking it was just going to be another one of those courteous 
Christian hugs that he had received so many times that just lasts a moment and then we move right on. But, Rodriguez wrote, Catherine smiled. She raised herself like a graceful ballerina and wrapped her arms around Robert's dirty neck. She then held on to him for more than 20 minutes as if she were hugging her husband or her dad or Jesus himself. She held on to this man like it was her favorite thing to do. And they never saw Robert in church again after that day. They never saw him at the traffic light either because it turned out that he had gone home to his family and then he had gone to rehab and then he'd gotten clean and he'd gotten a job and he'd gotten reconnected to his community. And a few months later, he sent a message to the church and he said, it was the hug. It was Catherine's hug that did it. That's not just kindness. That's the power of God. So to whom do we owe good? To whom do we have an obligation to give good? We must wrestle honestly with the possibility that it is not the people we would like it to be. We must wrestle honestly with the possibility that we are the priests and the Levites who would rather not get dirty rather than that we'd rather hold on to our own power we would rather hold on to our own status. But Howard Thurman, the venerable 20th century theologian and preacher, he, he concluded one of his many sermons on this parable, because he preached on it often, uh, with these words. He said, Do not shrink from that which turns up in your road, that suddenly makes of you an ultimate demand. Know that if you respond with all that you have, your little life, takes on a meaning in the light of which even death itself becomes a little thing. To miss it because of fear, timidity, pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, deceit, to miss it is to wander in darkness. And what a darkness that is. And so, like a good shepherd, we are called to be vigilant and to watch for those to whom we owe good. Because when we ask what is in our power to give, we have to remember that it is not just our power. It is the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ that we have to give. A power that enables everything from creation and redemption to small acts of love like a hug that can transform and renew. The question we should really be asking ourselves is what can't we do with such power? What can't we do with such amazing and abundant grace? Paul writes that there is nothing in heaven or on earth, in life or in death, in the church or in the world, under the powers and principalities, and in the midst of injustice, there is nothing that separates us from this power. It is always with us and always within us to draw strength from God and to do the will of God, which is to love the outcast as our neighbor, to serve the servants, as though we were theirs, to heal the broken and to release the captive, to give voice and vision to all that is good in this world, and to lend our lives to the cause of redeeming what is broken. And so let us be unashamed in that power. Let us be unashamed of 
of committing ourselves to what makes an ultimate demand upon us, even if it requires our sacrifice, even if it requires something we may not expect to do. For ultimately, the power of God is for salvation. And there is nothing more glorious or greater than this in life. So do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. For we have the power of God to give it. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope this week's message has blessed you and that you got something out of it that you can take with you all along life's journey, wherever that may take you. If you want to learn more about Union Congregational Church, our life and ministry together, you can visit churchbythepark.org. Our theme music is Victim and Victor by RKVC. Until next time, may God's grace and peace be with you.